All right, amen. Uh, kindergarten through second grade will remain with us for the rest of the summer. I got a quick question for you in all seriousness, uh, and this is not rhetorical. How many of you are, you're, you're just weary and exhausted, honestly? Come on, there's gotta be, with kind of the, the vibe we got going on this morning, there's gotta be a bunch of y'all that are weary and exhausted. Um, and, and I'm numbered among you, right? Uh, it, it's, it's hotter than it should be, right? Uh, much like the plants in my butterfly garden that by the end of the day are just weary and giving out uh, and it's not a water issue, but, but we've had graduation, many of you, it's been, it's been a tough season. So I wanna pause and pray for us because we're actually talking about the victory of Christ this morning. And, uh, and, and here's the, let me give you the good news. Our feelings about it, the energy that we bring or don't bring to any given thing doesn't change the truth. And in fact, when he said, come all you who are heavy laden and burdened, I'll give you rest. Here's the really great thing about that passage. I don't think many people came. And so he covered the rest of the distance. Notice it's God who condescends to us. It's he who comes to us even when we can't, don't have the energy. I, I can guarantee you, those folks are sitting in 90 degree heat and they are cheering their heads off, and they're good with it. Many of you are thinking, if the air don't cut on in the next few minutes, I'm out of here. I don't care what he's talking about. I'll just have to be a Christian another time, right? And so there's a real dissonance between us and them. And it's our Christ who's victorious, and their children who are playing a sport that has no eternal value. So I want to pray for us, because I, like, I feel like we're not quite there. And we, we may not get there, but Christ is going to make it to us, right? He's going to make it to us through God's word here this morning. And what a great day to have the table for a, a weary people. The elements are going to come to you. We're not even asking you to get up and come to it. And that's exactly how Christ loves us and what his victory means to us. So let's pray. Father, we know that we are forgiven. We know that you are more excited about our redemption than even we are. We know that all of heaven breaks out into a party when one lost sinner comes home. And that party is meant to continue for eternity. God, thank you that there is a marriage supper that we are invited to for which this that we're doing today is but a shadow. It points forward to, it's not the full of it yet. We are between the now and the not yet. You know that we grow weary. You know that we get tired you know that we don't know the fullness of the victory of Christ, which is why he has to return to display it and why it takes an eternity for us to celebrate it. May we get a little practice in between the now and the not yet. We know that you're with us this morning. We know that your spirit is at work. May we, your people, be able to celebrate in some form or fashion the victory that Christ has in his resurrection, ascension, and coming again so that we would not taste of the, the pain of death and the wages of sin. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, uh, we are in Ephesians. We'll be in verses 15 through 23 this morning. This is following that really long 202-word sentence, which was a eulogy for the living God, a blessing for God. And now we have another long sentence, which is a prayer for the people, uh, a declaration of the victory of Christ, in which Paul is praying that what that eulogy stands for would be lived out in their lives right? And so that's what we're going to see here this morning. And so before we turn to that, here's the key truth that I want you to get from this morning. We are to grow in our love for others and knowledge of God based on the firm and eternal foundation of Christ's cosmic victory and reign. So let me ask you this. What are the most important signs of spiritual health and growth? This is really important because I think we've got this primarily wrong, actually. 
from what the Bible seems to think is most important. When I usually ask people, hey, how are you growing spiritually? Almost invariably, they'll point to two things, which by the way, are very important. And part of what I think is really the most important, but they'll point to their Bible reading, which by the way, doesn't require interaction with any other human being, does it? Interesting, we would pick that as a potential litmus test for us who are being saved into community, but okay. And then prayer, which also requires no interaction oftentimes with other human beings, but, but certainly with God. And those are very private type things, right? And those are often the, time, the things that we look to and say, hey, here's where I'm maturing. And those are good things to mature in. Do not get me wrong. However, as far as the Bible is concerned, the things that are always pointed to, and there are two, is our love of God and our love of neighbor, both of which are to be displayed for the life of the world. They are communal realities that cannot be in a vacuum. Remember, and Francis Schaeffer points to this passage, that when Jesus says, the world will know who you are by your Bible reading and prayer closet, right? Y'all remember that passage? No, you don't, because it ain't there. What you should remember is you will, the world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another, which comes out of our abiding in Christ, right? And we're guaranteed to bear fruit when we abide in Christ, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we're perceiving in the moment. In fact, a lot of times, and we've talked about this, in the new heavens, new earth, a lot of that stuff that you didn't think mattered a whole lot or that you thought was taking way too long is what's actually going to show up on the bride as the righteousness of the saints to make her beautiful. And what a glorious thing and day that will be. Amen? Let me try it one more time. That was a murmur. Y'all try to match them out there one time. Just one time. All right, y'all ready? Amen? Amen. You got it in you. You just got to let it out. You just got to let it out sometimes. All right, so... Having said that, if, if the true litmus test of our growth is our love of God and love of neighbor, we should be able to articulate that and be willing to ask one another about that on a regular basis. Let me also remind you that love is hard. Both loving an invisible God, right, who sometimes can seem completely hidden, as Luther talks about him. It, it can seem as if heaven were brass and he were nowhere to be found, which is not true given his promises. However, it sometimes is our end-time experience. It's hard to love someone whom you can't see or hear in the way that we're used to hearing, right? It's also equally, if not more hard, to love someone you can see who is fallen and uh, presents challenges and is inconsistent and doesn't remember your birthday and doesn't, you know, right? I mean, so it's hard to love even what we can see. So this, this is something that we have to recognize. Sometimes you're growing is exactly in the season where you're struggling the most, right? Part of me loving my butterfly garden is not to water it every single day. Why? What's going to happen when drought comes? Its roots won't go deep. It'll be shallow because all the water was right there on top. It has to be pressed at times. Now you got to water it in first, and then you got to let it, you got to back off, right? To love my butterfly garden well, I have to put it through some stress. I can't rush out there every time uh, my yarrow weed is kind of falling over going, oh, I'm dying, it's so hot, help me. I have to let it suffer a bit. 
right? So its roots will go deep. You're the same. I'm the same. There is a real sense in which those dry seasons that you hate so much, that you think are actually something that they're not, are the seasons in which your roots are going the deepest, trying to find water. And praise God for those seasons. You come out better on the other side. So the upside-down nature of the kingdom is also true of our discipleship. What we think is growth oftentimes is just pantomiming and celebration and, and other emotions that aren't really fully consistent, right? So as we turn to this, we need to keep those things in mind because Paul's greatest desire is that the Ephesians saints would display all of that glory that we read for the confession, that we would evidence that Christ will bring all things back together, that we are sealed in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is good for us to remember on the days when we're most weary, isn't it? So as we turn to the text, we'll read verses 15 through 19. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And so what we have here is Paul says, for this reason. Now, scholars are slightly divided on whether or not the for this reason has to do with the results of the eulogy above, what Christ has accomplished, or the fact that he can see their faith and their love. I don't think it's much of an argument because their faith and their love are the results of the eulogy from above, right? Because of their in-Christness, they are able, and their sealedness in the Spirit, they are able to display their faith and their love for the saints. So it's for the reason that God is faithful to do what he said he would do, for the reason that we are in Christ, Paul can't help but turn and see the manifestation of that in their lives. And he starts with, he says, I, first thing he sees or he's heard of, is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is something that, and again, this faith and love are the great gifts of the Spirit. There's so many things that we get tangled up about and that we think are, are true gifts of the Spirit. No, these are the two greatest. The greatest of all, in fact, Paul says that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that the greatest of all is love itself, which is only manifested if you have faith in Christ. True love cannot be shown in an eternal fashion unless we are in union with Christ. And so he says, I, I, I see, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, it means that what he's heard of is their dependence upon Christ. They're abiding in Christ. It's something that is tangible and can be witnessed to. Now, for us, we ought to ask, is there anyone who could say, hey, I've, I've heard of y'all's faith. I've heard of your willingness to abide and endure for the sake of reconciliation. 
I have heard of y'all's willingness to step into sacred places that look like war zones called marriages coming apart or kids fleeing from their families or any sort of reconciliatory issues. I've heard that you all are some of the first to go there. I've heard that you all love people at the margins really well, that you love broken people with a patience that can only be attributed to your abiding in Christ. Can that be said of you, us, we as a congregation? And so that's something that we want to, we, we want to grow in. We want to pray for. Lord, increase our faith. This is not just about as, we, as the building is coming, and that's going to require a lot of us in a, in a number of different ways. That's, that's not the main display, right? The main display is going to be the ongoing work of our loving and abiding and being willing to push to reconcile, of, of being the first who will offer forgiveness, the first to seek forgiveness, those who display their faith in Christ by showing they have the same heart he did. Remember, what's he coming to do? What did we learn from the eulogy? What's the purpose of it? Well, that all things would be unified in him. And if all things are to be unified in him, then what things could we leave out? Who do we get to leave out? No one. We don't get to do that. Judgment is his to render, right, as king. And remember from 2 Peter, God is being patient and kind as his character was described in Exodus 34, right? He is long-suffering. He has not shown up and made all things new yet because why? Because that baseball tournament ain't over yet and he really wants to see who's going to win? Because he really wants to see if Toronto can pull it off, if somebody can finally vanquish the Warriors in the NBA Finals? No, no, no. He tarries because he wants the family to get bigger. So what should it be that we are at work in, in some way, shape, or form? That field, right? In some form or fashion, and all of us are in different spheres of influence. All of us have different family members. All of us have different neighbors. And, and, it, and here's the good news, because of God's work, in saving, as we saw in the eulogy, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not incumbent upon us to make it work. It's incumbent upon us to live it out where they can see it. Right? And so what that means is just having meals with, spending time with, having conversations with, praying for. That's what it looks like. And so notice how I really could have just been describing their love for the saints. Right? So faith and love, you can't separate them. You can't tell me, in fact, what book of the Bible says this very clearly from start to finish? James. There is no faith without love, and there's no love without faith either. They are intertwined in us. So when he says, I also have, have heard of your love for the saints, here's where it's you got to be really careful. So we, we could hear that and say, oh, I guess I only like Christian people. They don't like people like them. Well, um, even in our midst, are we assured that every single person here is a saint? Nope, we're not. And there are some people that you think, I don't, I'm not sure they're a saint because of that, that language or because of that cigarette or because of that dancing or gambling or what. Well, I, don't, I don't know what the current sins are in the South. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've been reading Rick Bragg's Ava's Man, so that's really kind of heavy on my mind. But, but, we oftentimes have no earthly idea 
what a saint really looks like. Because so much of it is just outward show. And, and in order to find out if somebody's a saint, you got to get into the ditch with them somewhere. you got to probably get sideways with them and see what reconciliation looks like. You, you've got to find out if, if they're willing to take you pushing against them or them pushing against you. It requires relationship. And so this is, he's not talking about uh, love in the abstract or saints in the abstract. What he's saying is, is something that we've heard in Matthew 25 in the same way I think the Ephesians would be, hey, what saints have we loved? We just love people. Remember what, what the, those who had actually done the things to the least of these said? And Jesus said, that which you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. Even the sheep said, we didn't know it was you, Lord. We just were doing what we knew was right. We were living out our faith in the context in which you had placed us sovereignly. And so therefore, they were doing it under Christ. In the same way, we are often loving saints either that aren't saints quite yet. We don't know them as saints quite yet. But every person we come in contact with ought to be treated as image bearers because that's what we're called to do, right? So what Paul is hearing of is these Ephesian saints are living out the, the glorious results of their salvation in such a way that it's tangible, it can be heard of, right, and celebrated even. And, and so sometimes I think that we are so worried about uh, shifting into works-based stuff and so worried about failing to be humble that we can miss out on what we ought to be thinking and talking about and looking at and measuring in some form or fashion. And so Paul says that because of those things, because of the, the outworking of their salvation tangibly in life, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. He, he, is, he is a lot of gratitude for them. That's one of the reasons we've been going through Paul's missionary journey in the book of Acts for our assurances of pardon. We haven't quite hit the part where he gets to Ephesus, but he has a, a particular relationship with Ephesus. And we see it beautifully when he calls for the elders from Ephesus to meet him in Miletus so he can pray for them because he realizes this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. And when I leave, wolves are going to come in because I'm gone and they're going to try to harm you and harm your people. If you remember, the thing he tells them to do is just make sure you give them the full counsel of God's word and that will protect them. It's one of the reasons we here preach from the Old and New Testament. You have Old and New Testament as part of every single service is we don't want to shy away from the full counsel of God's word. But, but he had a particular relationship with them. He loved them, and he, he was able to hear of the fruit that was being born of this church being located in Ephesus and the surrounding regions, the churches in the surrounding areas. And he says that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them, and he remembers them in his prayers, and he prays this specifically. And this is really important for us. He says, he prays specifically that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him being God, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. And I'm going to pause right there. So what he's praying for, now you're going to understand it. When Paul and other people in the Bible speak of knowledge, they are never, pure, unless it's a negative, if they're speaking of it in the positive, they're never talking about knowing information. That's really important because I think for a lot of us, we think that uh, most of the Christian life is about knowing information, right? Like, 
like what happened at En Gedi or Petra or who was the fourth king after uh, Josiah or how many years did so-and-so reign? Like, don't get me wrong. You, you can win like a month's worth of wings at a Bible quiz competition on that, and that's really important to me. If you want to be on my team, come talk to me. Uh, but, but it's not about that. It's always, always about knowing a person. Knowledge is relationship, right? And how many of you would say you have a relationship with someone you don't know very much about? You don't. We don't talk like that. We only speak of relationships with people that we have something that we know about them. And the more that increases, the more we feel like we know them and we're in a deeper relationship with them. And so what Paul is praying here is that God, God would grant them this, the Holy Spirit, which remember, what's the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit that we learned from John? Every spiritual gift leads to it. Everything points to what the Spirit does. It is that we would know God the Father in and through Christ Jesus. So you should never talk about the Holy Spirit without that in view. So he, he prays that the Holy Spirit would grant them wisdom, right? And what's wisdom? To fear the Lord your God. Now fear not in the sense of be afraid of, but recognize as different than. He's holy. He's other than. He's greater than. He's the creator. We're the creature. There is a, uh, a role relationship there that we have to respect. And too often, I don't know that we do. And so he says that you would have wisdom. That means that you have a right understanding of who God is and knowledge which is, you may think of it as wisdom being the transcendent aspect, knowledge being the imminent aspect, right? That you would draw close to God and have some knowledge of him in a relational way. And he prays that there are three things that he hopes will result from that. And then he, before he gets there, he says to have the eyes of your heart open. So basically saying to, for you to be able to see where God is at work, to be able to know God is near and his promises, that you would basically have your imagination transformed. For so many of us, part of the problem is we can't see or hear. And we don't ask for help. Because to ask for help is to show weakness. Or that you may not know, or that you're frustrated and you feel like, well, I've asked for help before. I've tried all that before. As if, as you move through time, things don't change. As if you haven't changed, and those same old means of grace may have a new impact on you. Because the Spirit is at work. See, we too should be praying that the Lord would grant us wisdom, that he would grant us relationship through the transformation of our imaginations. Because as you look at this world, how can you imagine this ending well? How can you imagine that God is at work in so many different things, especially when it seems like there's so much going wrong? And so it's important that we, the people of God, have our imaginations transformed so that we can speak of this first thing. Notice what he says first, what is the hope to which you are called? So what is the hope to which we are called? He talked about it in the eulogy. We, we hear about it in Revelation 21. Actually, we hear about it in Revelation 7 first and then in 21. 
What is it? Well, let me help you out. You who are yawning and weary, um, nonplussed by the hope that we are supposed to have, is that God will make all things new. And that all of the, the, the tears, all of the things that you battle with day in, day out, that make you weary, that make you nonplussed at the victory of Christ, that that would be transformed such that it will be a celebration that will take eternity to complete, meaning it will never be completed. That is the hope to which we are called. It is a guaranteed hope which allows us to function in those dark places, in those broken places, for us to step into the areas that seem so lost and declare the victory of Christ. Isaiah 58 calls us to do it. The entire Old Testament calls us to go to where God is at work. Where is he at work? Among the broken. He's always at work seeking to reconcile in the darkest places of all. That's why he saves to the uttermost. Do you believe that? And if you did, what would it look like in your life? That we would grow in this hope to which we are called. And then he says, he also wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That we would know the fullness of our salvation. The, the great gifts that we have in the heavenly places as declared in that eulogy. The fact that you are chosen by God, not because you are greater than, but because you had no chance. That's why he chose you. Which means what for those who are marginalized? He is their greatest hope of all. And you who bear his image, who have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, are called to display that glory. But if you don't think it's much of an inheritance, well then, that makes a lot of sense as to why you wouldn't share it with very many. And then he goes on to say the third thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so what he's saying here is that the God of the universe has chosen to work in and through us in such a powerful way, it's the same power that rose Christ from the dead. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But this glorious power that holds all things together is at work in you. So think about how this works. For us to actually try to live for the life of the world against such hostility, both from within and from without, if we don't have hope, if we don't know our own inheritance, and we don't believe that God holds all things together, we will risk nothing. It goes back to last week's sermon when we talked about what allows you to risk. This should allow us to risk, and let me ask you this, is it actually risk, given these things are true? No, it's not. But we act as if it is. We act as if, man, you could really lose a whole bunch of stuff going out and telling people that God loves them. You could really ruin your neighborhood, your job. You could, you could absolutely ruin uh, the place where you work out if you go around telling people that God loves them and that, and that Christ is able to hold all things together and that one day every tear will be wiped away. Nobody wants to hear that, right? Or do they? Or is there a holy longing? And, and again, we are resistant. Now, once you get to, you got to bend the knee type stuff. That's where it gets weird, right? It got weird for all of us. For Christ truly to be king means we must be subject 
And that is where it stands or falls, doesn't it? That's where it kind of gets strange. But are you the one to say to them, you must bend the knee? Or is that for the Spirit to transform their heart? This God who from eternity past has had some sort of uh, moving in the hearts of of people in, in what we call the present. Is it up to you to make them bend that knee as if you were on some sort of crusade? No, it's for us to display the glory, to invite people in and help them to see that Christ is victorious and that is good for them. And that God is good and he's patient and he's kind and he's long-suffering as we also should be with them as they struggle with these eternal truths. Again, I feel like I need to remind myself and you, we're, we're talking about eternity here. Let's be careful, right? We, we can't just, that's not, you don't just shoot from the hip with eternal things. You gotta be careful with what, what you say. That's why, yes, that's why I do think that prayer and Bible reading is important. That's where you cultivate those things so that what you share is true and not traditional or twisted or something other. A God created in your own image. And so Paul is praying that they would continue to be filled with the Spirit, the knowledge of God, relationship with God, so that they would go and share this with the world. Listen to what Peter T. O'Brien says about this. He says, the intercession is a prayer (coughs) for the realization of, of the blessings of the eulogy in the lives of the readers. And so what he's saying is, may this eulogy become incarnated. May it be flesh and blood in you. And he says, but basically it is a petition that those who have been so richly blessed by God may learn about hope, glory, and power. So what are some ways in which you have grown in love for others over the last few months? That's a great question for you to consider this Lord's Day Sabbath and to really wrestle with and think through. Some of it may be through struggle, actually. You may feel like, I actually feel like I probably love people less because I'm really struggling. No, no, no. The struggle is part of the becoming. In fact, it is in the struggle that we often uh, are are proved out, right? That that we do find that we actually do, in fact, love people. It's easy to love our friends. It's easy to love people when they're kind to you. But what happens when it's not so easy? When they fail to respond or they respond curtly or or they... just completely ignore you. So, are you growing? Have you grown in your love for others over the last few months? And then what are some ways in which you have grown in your knowledge of God and your relationship to him? You could think about, have you grown in your hope, your understanding of what's coming when Christ returns? Are you growing in your understanding of the beauty and glory of of your salvation, all that it contains? Not that you've exhausted that, by the way but that you are so thankful for your justification. You are appreciative of how God is working in and through you in your sanctification. Are you you thankful that your life is hidden on high and it will be revealed in glory when Christ returns? That who you are is sealed in Christ. Your job is to discover that over this lifetime. And so how is the gospel transforming your imagination for the life of the world? It's easy to know who you are by what you love and what you don't love or hate. 
And so you want to think through, what are you displaying? What does the world know about you? Because I, remember, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about you. Neighbors you have never even met, based on either the condition of your yard, when you come and go, they make up all kind of stories about you, just like you do about them. And they, they have some, and once they find out you're a Christian, think about how that alters the narrative, for better or worse. And so it's important that we be mindful of what we're displaying in this world. Are you going to be perfect? <laughs> Let's get that off the table. You're just not. And I don't say that about any of you because I know you individually, but it really increases the not for those I know individually. Um, and, and the same for me too, Right? Um, but, but the truth is, we're, we're just, let's get that out of the way. In fact, how you fail and react to it is going to be of far greater use to the kingdom than all your perfection. Because all your perfection points to whom? You. You. But your struggle and how you deal with it and how you wrestle with it in repentance and forgiveness that points to Jesus. So live your lives in the beauty of the gospel, knowing what you're filled with, knowing what you've been saved for, knowing the power that is indwelt in you to change and transform this world. Our leadership cultivation course recently watched a Q talk by a man named Brian Stevenson, who um, uh, is a lawyer from Atlanta, uh, went to Birmingham for a bit, and had a tremendous impact on the system. The United States is the only country in the world that will execute uh, teenagers, children. We're actually the only place in the world who has children on death row. Um, and again, there's lot, we could argue a lot about what that means or doesn't mean, right? But uh, given his experience and relationships that he built with so many of those, both inside and outside the system, he and the people with him have helped to transform how law looks at and approaches the rehabilitation of children who've committed heinous crimes. Um, and, it's, and it's actually a beautiful story. Um, and and I almost quit this job, went back to law school, because I thought, man, I can make a bigger impact on the world doing stuff like that. That's not true, by the way. But do remember, I wanted to be a lawyer originally in life, which probably makes a lot of sense to my preaching style, if you think about it, Right? And so, uh, so there are situations in which people do transform things. And he's a Christian, and he makes not a lot of bones about that, and uh, is informed by the gospel. And so we, too, could be those kind of people. But what are we displaying in this world? And so what Paul's going to get to next is the firm foundation on which all of this rests. If you would turn back to the text, and let's hear 20 through 23. I'm actually going to back up into 19 and, and read so it flows a little better. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church." which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all and all. This is why we read Psalm 110. 
is our call to worship. And many of you, if you were paying attention, when we got to that valley filled with corpses part, you're thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. What kind of call to worship is this? Well, it's, it's the call to worship that actually points forward to an end to war so that valleys will not be filled with corpses, so that the kings will be broken, will be broken in forgiveness and not in body, so that death would be defeated and sin defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, sin, where is your sting in this? And so Psalm 110 points to the king who will reign, who will take all of that away, But if we are left to our devices, you bet, valleys will be filled with corpses and kings will be broken over and over and over again as the wheel of history continues. But in Christ, we have a king who will reign forever, who reigns at current, who is victorious because of what God has done. Notice that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that same power that fulfilled the prophecy that was spoken of so long ago, that same power that holds all things together is at work in you. That same king that reigns cosmically, that heaven and earth bows to ultimately, he is the head of this very church. What would it look like if we thought that was true? How would we live if we really thought Christ was victorious and he reigns? How would it change our day-to-day existence? the meaning of all things. Sometimes I think that we live as if it's not true. When you listen to the people who are screaming from the minarets about the culture wars, which are true, by the way, and I get it, and our way of life is going to change. If you read history at all, currently, for reasons I can't totally explain, reading about Russia under the old regime, which goes all the way back to the czars and all this kind of stuff. And it really is fascinating to read about how all of this came into being and really what set the seeds for communist Russia that goes all the way back to the first century in, in some interesting ways. Um, but, but nothing has changed much. No way of life lasts for very long if you read history. It just doesn't. And we seem to be arrogant enough to think we can make it work. We just had the right leader. If we just had the right type of government, if we just had enough technology, if we just had enough food, which is actually going to return us to some interesting things. That's been a historical problem. Usually when societies change, it's around food and, it, and your ability to get it. Um, and so uh, we're, we're in an interesting time. And I don't know when it might change for us. It seems to have been changing, right? Think about how glorious we thought the 50s were. If you read about the 50s, it lasted really about six years, all that prosperity. Uh, and it was prosperity because you had it on the, you have the depression hits, right? And then you have World War II, which actually kind of does this weird thing of lifting us out of the depression. Oh, by the way, we still have a host of civil rights issues going on in our own country, right? But those were the glorious days if you were suburbanites. But it only lasted for a little while, even if you thought those were the glory days. The, the prosperity of the 80s, that was so prevalent, didn't last that long either, all in all, right? Um, and so things change a whole bunch, but God doesn't. And his people always have access to him. They always have the indwelling of the spirit. And we are able to move in and out of these various cultural changes and not be changed. 
and still maintain hope and still maintain the knowledge of our inheritance and still maintain the knowledge of the power of the Lord our God. And did I just say, you shouldn't vote, you shouldn't care about these things? No, 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 it's not what I said. If you're gonna be and participate in a society, you're gonna be a good citizen, that's part of it, right? That's how you display the glory of God. You get involved in these things, but you don't hold on too tightly to what's passing no matter what you do. As Frost said, nothing gold can stay. And I'm not even sure this is gold. And so here what we have is the victory of Christ is the single defining moment for us. It is the key foundational truth that we must rest upon that everything we are must come from. Listen to what Timothy Gombas says about this. He says, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 contains the thesis statement of the Ephesian letter. Paul's audacious claim that Jesus Christ is the victorious and exalted cosmic Lord. Now, what do I mean by cosmic? Is that a Star Wars term? Is that, what is that? That means he rules over the entire universe, every riven thing he is Lord of. There's no part that was left out of his reign, his rule. So what impact does Christ's cosmic victory and reign have on your life? Do you even think about it? Does it ever, ever even cross your mind much as you go through the day? As you wake up on the wrong side of the world thinking, this day's going to be terrible. Wouldn't it be good to be reminded Christ holds all things together and that day will see its end, but not you who are eternal in Christ? That should be good news to us. So what does Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 teach us? It teaches us that we are to grow in love for others in our knowledge of God and that 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 should be based on the firm and eternal foundation of Christ's cosmic victory and reign. If we, the church, are not growing in our love for others and our love for the Lord our God in relationship with him, then, then something is off and we need to be diligent to figure that out. Um, we need to return to the means of grace to see where we're losing sight of what's most important, which we often do. And we need to help and lovingly correct one another for reconciliatory purposes. Stephen E. Fowle says, the hope of this prayer is that the Ephesians will come to understand the significance of God's drama of salvation and Christ's particular place in the drama. I also want to add is that it's also that we would know our place in the drama. So what a gift that we have the Lord's table this morning to remind us of our place in this drama, to remind us of the firm foundation that Christ is in fact victorious, that these elements point to Christ's victory over sin and death, that we have been made into eternal beings, that we have been given the great gift of, of union with Christ, of abiding in Christ. Um, and so what a gift that we get to be reminded of these things this morning. Um, and, and praise God that he gives us uh, something that would point us back to him again and again. It would not just be our ears that would be involved, that our very senses, touch, taste, and sight. Remember, this is the word made visible. This table points to the utter victory of Christ over the things that defeat us or that haunt us, shame, guilt, sin, death, all of those things have been defeated as displayed in this table. And so this morning, may we be reminded that on that night when Christ was having his last meal with them in, in, in the bodily form that he would be in before his crucifixion and resurrection, 
and he wanted them to have something that they would remember him often by. And remember, common elements are such an important aspect of the Christian life. Um, he grabbed bread, which was part of their meal, and he reached and he said, this is my body given for you. And in him saying that to them, what he was declaring is that their shame and guilt, the wrath of God, would be satisfied and they would no longer have to walk in it unless they chose to. And so what he was saying is you've been set free. So as you receive the bread this morning, would you give thanks, as Paul did, for the victory of Christ? Give thanks that that victory applies to you personally. This is not some abstract idea. It applies to you personally and us as his people. Would you give thanks that sin and death and shame and guilt no longer define us ultimately, but it's the victory of Christ that defines us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread. Thank you for the victory of Christ. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we get to come to this table weary, and we get to come to this table um, at times not really feeling the hope, not really sensing your power, not really all that excited about the glorious inheritance that we do have, and yet you come to us and say, oh, child, be nourished, be filled with the Spirit. May that be true of us here this morning, that as we leave, we leave in greater spirit than what we came. In Christ's name, amen.